You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Set on. Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you had heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing? If it was really, if it was really was for nothing, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? Consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that, faith, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred has come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator, A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised being given through the faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Therefore, this faith came, we are held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. It's pretty heavy reading, isn't it? Uh, The part they're up to has... might be helpful for you. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Uh, just a, a quick
quick couple of things. Uh, if you're in the middle of this series and um, at growth group and kind of think, you know, it'd be really good to have a bit of extra help as I'm looking at the Bible and as I'm uh, working out the, the uh, growth group studies, there's a great book called Galatians for You. And it's just a bit of a commentary. It's really, really easy to read in terms of uh, commentaries and as far as they go by a, a bloke named Timothy Keller. A couple of interesting things in there. He's a bit American, but uh, that's okay. We won't hold it against him. But it's really good. Galatians for you if you're interested in that. Uh, keep your Bibles open there at that point, And um, there's an outline on the back of the bulletin as well if you find that helpful. How about we pray before we look at God's Word, though. Let's give thanks to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for uh, your word that's living and active. We thank you that in your word we find the good news of your son Jesus. We thank you that through Jesus we have life with you. We're saved to be in a relationship with you. That through Jesus, through the gospel, we uh, grow in living for you and grow to be more like Jesus. We ask that your spirit will be working us this morning as we look at this part of your word and that we be shaped into the likeness of your son. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we've been cleaning up at home a bit recently just to get ready to move house. And um, I came across a, a couple of old school reports I'm a bit of a hoarder, and so I've got things from school, you know, 10, 15 years ago, so that's what they're there. They're in there, sitting in a box with some photo albums and some, and some uh, other stuff, stuff, and I picked it up, uh, these reports, and I grabbed them, and I thought, I'll just have a read, uh, see what they say, see what teachers thought back then in the day. And uh, these were some of the comments. Matthew would do better at English if he wasn't so easily distracted. You can tell I'm in trouble because I only get called Matthew when I'm in trouble, right? Another one, Matthew would understand more concepts of mathematics if he didn't daydream as much. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? <laughs> I might be daydreaming about mathematics, I don't know that. And lastly, Matthew needs to concentrate harder during class time in order to have a better grasp of biology. A little bit scathing, isn't it? A little bit harsh. But I think one of the common themes through all that, though, is as much as it pains me to say... I'm someone who's easily distracted. And you're probably thinking, oh, come on, yeah, we've known that. You've lived here for almost two years. Tell us something that we don't know. But for those of you that don't know me, it's true. Uh, I'm the person in mid-conversation that if something catches my eye, I'm kind of drawn to it and uh, they're still talking to me. Oh, sorry, yes. Uh, if I hear a loud noise of people laughing, then I'm drawn to that and I want to know what they're laughing about and I wonder uh, if I can be part of that conversation. If I see something flash past the corner of my eye, I'm caught by that and I'll go and see what it is straight away. I'm very easily distracted. But apparently, I'm in good company. You might be someone that's easily distracted as well. Research conducted by Microsoft recently revealed that because of the rise of technology in our society, the human attention span, so that's the time that we begin to zone out from a task, a task has gone from 12 seconds to 8 seconds. So I've been going for four minutes so far, so that's probably a dozen times that you've zoned out instead of going off track a little bit. We've gone from eight seconds, uh, sorry, we've gone from 12 seconds down to eight seconds. That's our attention span 
from the time that we start to zone out from something. Uh, they say that we're now equal to that of a goldfish. So we are the, the goldfish on Finding Nemo. That's our attention span. It's interesting research, isn't it? Because, you know, I, I really thought that maybe they'd have different re- research and... Uh, oh, sorry, where was I? Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, distractions, they're easy to come by, aren't they? They're easy, easy to come by. They're even easier to follow. And it turns out that people who lived uh, near on 2,000 years ago were also easily distracted as well. And as we've moved through this letter in the Bible called Galatians, the author Paul has reminded a bunch of Christians that they've got to stay focused. They can't be distracted from something that's really, really important. They've got to keep their eyes firmly fixed on the message that they've already heard. They've got to keep their their minds, their eyes, their hearts, they're all fixed on the simple message preached to them by Paul, the message of the gospel. The good news that Jesus has died and risen again to life for everyone. The message that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You see, they can't get distracted by anything else. The problem is, though, uh, the Christians that Paul writes to here in Galatia, they've already been distracted, haven't they? Uh, We've heard it there. Uh, Heather read it for us there in verse 1. You can see it there. Verse 1, the first three words, you foolish Galatians. It's meant to be more stronger than that. You foolish Galatians. What are you doing? Who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. What are you doing? Idiots, what are you doing, you foolish guys? Come on. I told you what to keep focused on, on Jesus, on his death on the cross, is what Paul's saying. That was the centre of Paul's message, but yet the Christians in Galatia, they've been bewitched. Literally, they've been fascinated, they've been captivated by something, they've been enchanted by something that's taken their gaze away from Jesus onto something else. And they're like bugs drawn to light, just heading towards that light that's distracting them from where they're supposed to be going. You really can't miss the frustration in Paul's vo- uh, voice there, can you? He doesn't really beat around the bush. He doesn't hold his punches, that's for sure. He calls them fools and he's like, oh, what are you doing? Foolish Galatians. He says it in verse 1 and then he says it again down there in verse 3. Are you so foolish? Are you so foolish to start so well? You know, to trust that Jesus has given you a right relationship with God, but then now you're totally distracted by something that you shouldn't be. You see, the point is it's only been a few years since Paul's been there among the Galatians, in uh, the Christians in Galatia. A few years since Paul's preached about Christ clearly crucified. And when the Galatians believed in Jesus, everything changed for them. Everything totally changed. They believed, uh, they received God's Holy Spirit and their whole life, their hearts, their minds were all changed to live in line with the gospel, to follow Jesus. And up to this point, we've heard how the Galatians are being distracted by these Jewish teachers who want them to sign up to living uh, by something called the Jewish law. These Jewish teachers are going around saying, yeah, yeah, it's great, it's great. You know, you trust in Jesus, that's fantastic. You're in a relationship with God through Jesus, well done, that's great. But, you know that to remain acceptable to God, you know that 
for God to keep loving you, that you've got to be doing stuff. You've got to be living like the Jews. You've got to be following the Old Testament, like the, the Ten Commandments and all the laws and stuff there. You see what they're doing? They're adding on to trusting in Jesus and what he's done on the cross with the Jewish law. And the worst thing is that these Christians in Galatia are, are falling for it. They're paying attention to it. They're distracted from what's really important. They're being distracted from the fact that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It's to that idea, Paul says, you fools, you, you big dummies. Now, that's a bit harsh to work out, but today we've got to work out if we're fools, if Paul was writing a letter for us today, would he be saying, you foolish Evans Headites or you foolish Richmond Valians or something like that? Does our focus on Jesus, does our focus need reorienting? Have we been distracted by something other than the gospel? No, no one really likes being called a fool, do they? Uh, I wouldn't have liked to be on the receiving end of that letter. You know, you just open it up and then, oh, you foolish Galatians. Wouldn't be very harsh. And, you know, in all honesty, I did find the comments of the teachers a little bit scathing, you know, because really they're calling me a daydreaming fool in a way. And it's a difficult thing to work through. But I think this morning it's worth it because hopefully after this morning our gaze will be fixed. Our gaze will be fixed on Jesus, on who he is, on what he's done. Now last week when we looked at uh, chapter 2 in uh, this letter, we heard the big issue that the Galatians were distracted from was something called justification. One of those big Christian jargon words. They were distracted from believing that Jesus' death on the cross meant that they were justified before God, that they're made right with God, that uh, they were, uh, through Jesus' death, that is just as if I'd never sinned. They were being distracted from that. So instead of trusting that Jesus' death in our place means that we can say, well, it's just as if I'd never sinned, they were thinking, no, it's by what we do that means that God is going to see us right with him, in a right relationship with him. But Jesus is the only way that we can be justified before God. Jesus is the only way that we can be made right before God. And the big distraction that Paul wants to address here now, moving on from chapter 2, in chapter 3, is another big shun word, and it's called sanctification. Again, it's one of those big Christian jargon words which relates to the term saint. And it has the meaning of being made holy or being set apart to live a godly life. It's the ongoing process of our sin, our rejecting relationship with God and rejecting his rule, that being put aside so that we become more and more like Jesus. That's the idea of sanctification. And what we're going to see is that here in chapter 3, Paul says that we're not only saved by Jesus, we're not only saved by the gospel, the good news of Jesus, but we also now grow by the gospel. And Paul begins to unpack through a whole bunch of rhetorical questions there that show that we're not only saved by the gospel, but we also grow by the gospel. Now, I don't know, if you were someone that got in trouble when you were at school, uh, looking out, I could probably say yes, I think a few of you probably would, uh, if a teacher asked you directly a rhetorical question, you kind of knew that you are in trouble, I think, right? You get fired this rhetorical question and you're like, well, the answer's kind of obvious, but I know if I say it, I'm going to get in more trouble. So you don't really say anything. Well, that's what's going on here. The Galatians are in a whole lot of trouble because they're getting distracted from Jesus and Paul then fires some rhetorical questions 
to them, the answer is obvious. All they have to do is think back to when Paul was with them. So track through the questions with me there from verse 2. He says this. This is what Paul writes. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Are you trying to do things? Have you experienced so much in vain if it really was in vain? So again, I ask, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by you believing what you've heard? There's a list of rhetorical questions that are just being fired and you're like, well, I think I know the answer. Well, I really do, but if I answer, I'm going to be in more trouble. See, think back, Paul says. Think back when Paul was there preaching among them. It wasn't about the Jewish Old Testament law at all. It was about Jesus. Preaching that Jesus is the only way to be right before God. Preaching Jesus is the only way to have a right relationship with God. So what a crazy thing to be doing what they're doing in verse 3 to begin that after they trust in Jesus, receiving the Spirit, but then move on from there thinking, well, now I better do stuff in order to live a life that's pleasing to God. Yes, I've been saved by Jesus, but to grow as a Christian, well, it means I've got to be doing stuff, I've got to be following the law. But they're thinking it's all about human effort. Like it's as if you're made right with God by hearing and believing, but somehow then thinking you have to stay right with God by finishing the job off yourself. And Paul says if you've fallen for that idea, that you start with the Spirit and you finish by doing your best in order to be accepted by God, in order to grow as a Christian, in order to be loved by God, well then you're crazy. You've forgotten the gospel. Because the way the Spirit entered your life is the way the Spirit advances in your life as a Christian. You see, it's not thinking, yep, okay, I'm trusting Jesus, I'm in a right relationship with God, I've been saved by Jesus, now I've got to turn and do stuff for myself. It's all about human effort so that God will love me. No, no. It's the same way that we start as a Christian is the same way that we finish, finish as a Christian. There's this great story about a famous tightrope walker named Charles Blondin in the 19th century who set up uh, a tightrope uh, walk. He's going to walk the tightrope across the Niagara Falls. And he was the first man in history to do it. And uh, when he gathered there, that when he uh, first started out and moved the, the... I don't know how he got the tightrope across the Niagara Falls, but he was lining up to do it and a big crowd gathered around. And thousands of people. And they watched him as he walked out on the, the tightrope across Niagara Falls to the other side, holding one of those balance beams. Uh, he, he walked back again holding a wheelbarrow and, and carrying some gravel in the wheelbarrow back across the tightrope. Uh, the story goes that after he tipped the gravel out, he put a stove in the wheelbarrow, walked it out into the middle of the tightrope, cracked an egg, flipped it, picked, cooked himself an omelette, and then kept on walking along the tightrope. Now, a big crowd gathered around uh, the great Charles Blondin as he did this, and the crowd were amazed. And he asked them each time, do you think I can walk across this tightrope? Yes, yes, we believe, Blondin. You're the greatest... Do you think I can walk this wheelbarrow across the tightrope? Yes, Blondin, you're the greatest that we've ever seen. You're amazing. Do you think I could take someone in this wheelbarrow across the tightrope, across Niagara Falls? Yes, Blondin, you're the greatest one. You're amazing. The greatest we've ever seen. And then he asks, well, who'll be the first to get in? And it's Ted's silent. 
No one wanted to get in with him. No one wanted to get in the wheelbarrow for him to push across the tightrope. And unfortunately, he conned his manager <laughs> to jump into the wheelbarrow and walk across it. It's believed that midway through uh, across the tightrope, the manager starts freaking out, as you would, because you're high above the Niagara Falls. And he starts freaking out and he thinks, oh, we're going to fall, what do I need to do? I need to do something to correct this because we're going to fall. I need, maybe I should lean this way. Blondin says to him, calm down. You've just got to let me guide you across and carry you across the tightrope. And he got to the other end. Now, I think it's a good story to remind us of, of what's going on here and what Paul's saying to the Galatians. That really, just like Blondin's manager had to entrust himself to the one who would do it all for him, just like Blondin's manager didn't have to do anything to get across, to go where he needed to go. That's what Paul's saying about the Christian life. It finishes the same way that it starts, with believing the good news of Jesus, that Jesus has saved us into a relationship with God and that Jesus, through the work of the Spirit, grows us as Christians. You see, as we grow as followers of Jesus, we repent, we turn back to God and we look to Christ's saving work and the Spirit uh, works in us shaping us to become more like Jesus. It's not about trusting Jesus, yep, I'm in the right relationship with God, now I'm saved, and then going, well, what do I need to do here in order for God to keep loving me? It's not about that. It's always been about entrusting ourselves to God who does everything for us. And then in a master stroke in chapter 3, in the next few verses, Paul brings out the big gun in his argument. He brings out the big great daddy of all arguments, the great father of the Jews, Abraham. He wants them to consider Abraham and how he lived. And now when you read about Abraham here, it's not just some kind of random example that Paul's plucked out and stuck down in the chapter there. This is the great father of the Jewish nation. Abraham was the childless, um, 100-year-old bloke that God promised there'd be a line of descendants from him that would bring blessing to all the world. That's who Abraham was. And you can read about him in Genesis 12. And so what do we learn here? Abraham wasn't right with God because he kept the Jewish law. That's what Paul's saying. The law hadn't actually even been given yet. But Abraham was still credited as righteous. He was still counted as being right with God. You see, verse 6. So Abraham believed God and it was credited to him credited to him as righteousness. Consider Abraham. He believed God. He believed what God said that from his line a whole line of descendants would come and it was credited to him as righteousness. He didn't even earn his righteousness by keeping the law. And it was accounted to him simply because he held on to what God had promised. Just like that manager of Charles Blondin, the tightrope walker, holding on to the promises of what Blondin said, that he'll be safe and he'll guide him safely across the tightrope. Well, here Abraham is holding on to what God promised, that from him a whole line of descendants would come, that from his line there'd be blessing for all the nations, for everyone. And so the question is, well, who's counted as the real family 
of Abraham. Now, who's in the family of Abraham? What's the family characteristics? What are the family traits? Uh, Often people recognise who my family members are because of two things. Uh, First of all, our laugh. Apparently we laugh all the same. And second of all, our lateness. Uh, We're often not very punctual. Uh, So that's how people pick uh, that I'm from this family, that my brother's from this family, that the sisters, we're all from the same family because we laugh the same and we're often usually late. I don't know what the family trait, the family characteristic is for your family, but what it is for Abraham's family is that do you have to be, do you have to be Jewish? Is that what it is? You've got to be Jewish. You've got to follow the Ten Commandments. Is it that you've got to follow the law that makes you a child of Abraham? Is it that you've got to be part of the, the Jewish tribe of Israel? Well, the thing that makes you part of God's family, the thing that makes you part of Abraham's family isn't the law, but it's faith. Who are the ones that will experience blessing? A blessing? Who are the ones that experience that blessing? Those who believe in God are the children of Abraham. Right from the start, God grabs Abraham and says, I'm going to reverse the curse of sin that's been on the world since Adam and Eve. Since they chose to ignore God's rule and reject God, there's been a curse that's existed over the world and God says, well, I'm going to reverse that now. I'm going to reverse the curse on the world that's been there right from the start of humankind. And I'm going to reverse the curse starting with you, Abraham. I'm going to count people righteous when they believe, when they hear about Jesus and put their trust in him. So all nations in that way will be blessed through you. So verse 9, those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. See, the Christians that we read about there in Galatia, they, they already had faith, but now they're being distracted. They're thinking that they need to look to the law to be acceptable to God. They need to look to the law in order to live a godly life. Because if they want to play the Lord, the law game, well, Paul says, they're fools. And if they want to play the law game, instead of God's blessing, they'll only find curse. You see, the law has always been about doing, 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 just like you know, cleaning the bathroom or painting the Sydney Harbour Bridge, doing and doing and doing and never really in the end getting done. Sure, we might be able to do some of the law, but we're never able to be, never ever able to, be, uh, to do all of it. And that might be able to do some things, but we'll never be able to do everything. And the trouble is, that just leaves us under a curse of not being in right relationship with God, thinking that it's our own human effort. So how do you get right with God? How do you enjoy God's blessing? How do you remain acceptable to God? How do you live a godly life and please Him? Verse uh, 13 there. This is what it says. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. His written curse is everyone who's hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promises of the Spirit. 
You see, the law and following the law is all under a curse. It's all about human effort. And we're never, ever going to be able to do everything in the law. We're never, ever going to be able to do all of it. So why go back? Why let anyone bewitch you? Why let anyone distract you from the way that we're made right with God, from how we remain acceptable to God to how we please God and live a godly life? Well, it's all come through Jesus. There's no real need to now return to the law. But the question then really that needs to be asked is, and the question that the Christians in Galatia I'm sure would have been asking, is if Christ has saved us from the law, if it's through Christ that we've given a right relationship to God, if it's through the gospel, through the good news of Jesus that we remain acceptable to God, if it's through the gospel, through the good news of Jesus that helps us grow to be more like Jesus and grow in living for God, what do we do with the law? What do we do with the Old Testament in our Bibles? Supposed to rip out the pages and use them as fire starters? Or as some people I know, uh, use the pages as uh, cigarettes, rolling a cigarette? What's the point of the Old Testament law? What do we do with it now? We just bypass it, go straight to the New Testament? Before you go ripping out the pages, Paul explains that the role of the law in the Christian life is this. And he gives two objections to what people would be thinking. Two objections. It's like he's in a courthouse and they're saying, well, come on, we've got the law still, we've got the Old Testament law, surely that means we've got to follow it. You, you, know, you trust in Jesus, but you can't just rip out the pages of the Old Testament. People wrote that down. People have typed it up for us. And he's there going, objection overruled, objection overruled. And he busts two objections to going back to the law. But he also points out the role of the law in the Christian life. The first thing that people can come up with is that since the law was given after Abraham, after the promise that God made to Abraham, then through faith, all people will look forward to blessing. But doesn't that mean the Old Testament law then replaces that promise made to Abraham? Doesn't the law replace the promises God made to Abraham because it comes after it? Okay, It's kind of like an agreement. If you make an agreement with someone and says, yes, I, I will uh, buy that car for $700, you make an agreement. But then afterwards, uh, someone says, oh, look, I'll buy the car for $900. What do you do then? Obviously, you go the $900, but it doesn't change the agreement. The agreement is, is duly recognised that you've already said you'll sell it for $700. And so what he's saying is that just because the law came after the promises made to Abraham doesn't mean that Abraham is done away with. It doesn't mean the promises of God are done away with. The law doesn't do away with the promise to Abraham. It doesn't change the promise that all nations will be blessed. All nations get to look forward to right relationship with Jesus. It's there for us uh, in verse 17. What I mean is this. The law, sure, it was introduced 430 years later. That doesn't set aside the covenant previously established by God and that's do away with the promise. If the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. That God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. You see, the promises now of God aren't null and void just because the laws come afterwards. No, the promises still stand. And so the objection is overruled. God would just have to kind of change his mind. Oh yeah, I said I'd you know, give you the car for 700 bucks, but I've actually changed my mind now. I want to, get, want to sell it for a thousand. God doesn't change his mind. It's not that uh, about our works, is it? 
It's not being in a, a right relationship with God and then God goes, well, you know what, those promises I made, now you've got to do the Ten Commandments, you've got to do the laws, all that kind of stuff. Now that you're a Christian, well, here are the Ten Commandments and you've got to do all that stuff. Objection overruled. The second objection that people might come up with that Paul overrules here is that it, it can't save us. What's the point of it? What's the purpose of the law? We just rip it out, rip out the pages, take it away camping, it'll start a nice fire. Is that what we do? And this is what he says from verse 22. Verse 22. Is the law opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until faith that was to come would be revealed. And so the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. We are no longer under a guardian. See, the great big purpose of the law is just like some of the signs that you see when you're driving along the highway. Often when I drove in Sydney, I would miss the sign and then wind up in the worst possible place, somewhere out the back of Blacktown or something like that. You've got to keep an eye on the signs when you're driving, don't you? With the law, the law is one big sign pointing ahead to our sin, pointing to ahead to our need for a saviour. It's just one big sign. That's the great big purpose of the law. So show us that we can't be in right relationship with God. We need a saviour. And the law teaches us then to look to, to find, to trust Jesus. So I wonder if you've been bewitched. I wonder if you've been captivated or fascinated by something else. Have you been distracted? Has your gaze shifted from the gospel thinking, well, now I'm saved by Jesus, but in order to be accepted by God, well, I need to keep doing things. I need to keep living and following the law. Now, maybe that's not really our problem, though. I don't really think now we, we can think that. Maybe we do, but I think maybe one of the big problems is that we're distracted away from the gospel we're distracted away from what Jesus has done for us and we think, well, maybe it's just up to me to, to do lots of great things. Maybe it's up to me to provide a really great morning tea. Maybe it's up to me to be the best youth leader. Maybe it's up to me to be the best kids' church leader. Maybe it's up to me to be the best prayer or the best church service leader or the, the best um, anything. Maybe it's up to me. I've got to do this in order for God to accept me. Maybe it's up to me in order to live a life for Jesus. Maybe we've instituted a law ourselves. Rather than so much following the Old Testament law, we institute this law where we think, well, I've got to do stuff myself. I've got to be the best this and this and this so that God will then accept me, so that God will then love me, so that I'll be more of a godly Christian. That's a works view, isn't it? Where we think that for us to keep being acceptable to God is by the things that we do. And so we try to outshine each other. We, we try to outshine someone else. We try to look at ourselves in the mirror and think, well, it's up to me. Rather than look through the window to Jesus, we look at a mirror 
and point back to ourselves. Don't get me wrong, it's great for us to serve our thankfulness to Jesus, but perhaps we need to switch our gaze away from ourselves and on to Jesus. Take it to the one who has given us relationship with God by his spirit. He enables us to live for him. Maybe we've been bewitched in thinking that to grow as a Christian, to grow in godliness, well, it's, it's all about what I do. That's how I've got to grow. I would need to do all this stuff in order to grow as a Christian. But we need to remember the Spirit. We need to remember that the Spirit Spirit points us back to Jesus. The Spirit causes us to to repent, to turn away from our sin, to turn back to Him. So we need to switch our gaze off ourselves. Instead of looking at the mirror, thinking it's up to me, looking through the window to Jesus and saying, it's all about Him, about his death and his resurrection. Maybe we've got to change our self-instituted laws, do away with our self-instituted laws and remember the gospel, remember the good news of Jesus and his saving work, abandoning our own self-trust and looking to him and asking for him to work in us a thankful life, a life in response to what he's done for us. There's a great hymn with a verse that I would finish off. An old hymn sums it up well here, I think. Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. Let's pray that we would be doing that. Let's talk to God. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks for who you are. We give you great thanks for what you've done for us in Jesus. Father, help us to look away from ourselves thinking that it's us that's going to be accepted before you, that's us that's going to be loved by you. It's, it's us just doing things uh, that are going to help us grow as a Christian. Father, help us to turn back to Jesus, to remember the gospel, that he has died so that we're saved, he's risen to life, he's given us the Holy Spirit to live lives that are changed for your glory. And we pray that we do this. Jesus' sake. In his name we pray. Amen.